to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Freya. This is a exclusive premiere of the track. I don't think you're going to be able to get to hear this until uh, early June. Uh, Jamie Joss is on the track. The song's called Sense of Doom. Our guest tonight, Carl Earth Crisis, or Carl Buckner, depending on how you say it. Um, this is his band, Freya, which he started many years ago. Still out there kicking ass, releasing new music under Upstate Records. And because of the appearance of the show, we got the exclusive exclusive. So check out Upstate Records, Freya, and we'll be getting back to Carl, our guest tonight, later on. Um, obviously, I'm wearing my cool-ass uh, Star Wars shirt because I'm recording this May the 4th. May the 4th be with you, right? <laughs> um, hardcore is going through a lot. A lot of people excited. A lot of people, you know, have internet conversations. Don't make no fucking sense. But, again, I'll stick to what I said. It's the people that do this shit every single day. The people that go ahead, put up flyers, do shows, do bands, book tours. You know, do this shit from their heart. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of bands that are succeeding just from doing their own shit. Not having a pack of wolves, agents, managers, and such. That's out there organically growing their bands. And I'll support that with my dying breath. With the looming This Is Hardcore now exactly three months. Just under 90 days away. It's important for me to tell you to make sure you get your ticket. To this is hardcore because you're not going to want to miss this. Our guest tonight, Carl, he is playing the Friday show at Underground Arts, Friday, November 4th, and that shit sold out. So don't miss out on the rest of this, okay? Um, Philadelphia Hardcore, we got some shows. We got some shows going on. Um, a bunch of them are sold out. Sansuga Bog's not sold out. That's June 2nd. Incendiary, that's not show, sold out. That's uh, June 23rd. We're going to have it announced next week in the next episode of the podcast, June 24th, and everything going on with that. But I'll keep it short and simple because you guys have been hearing me talk a lot. Um, www.phillyhcshows.com. Philly 8C Shows on Instagram and Twitter. Philly Hardcore Shows on Facebook. And obviously, if you ever want to follow the podcast, we are now on YouTube. T-I-H-C Podcast is now up. Our YouTube is just This Is Hardcore Fest. We're very generic with this titling, obviously. So, getting into the episode tonight. With the promotion cycle of This Is Hardcore and wanting to get Carl on the show, it was a no-brainer. Put two and two together. This conversation, shorter than some of our um, other episodes, I think we touched on a lot of cool shit. Carl... You guys all know who he is. You know his impact in hardcore. And I'm not ashamed on the show to tell him that. I feel as if sometimes people have a different stages in Earth Crisis who are written him off. As I touched on it in the interview, early on people critiqued Earth Crisis and would call them not even hardcore. You know, they're way more metal. Now if you listen to Destroy the Machines, it doesn't really sound like a lot of hardcore going on that days. But nothing can take away from their live shows at that time. And... If you were around in that era, whether it was the Firestorm demo, the 7-inch, and then the re-releases as Destroy the Machines came back out, I'm telling you something right now. 
There was just something special about that band, and it carried on for many years after many releases. In fact, the most bizarre thing is that there's young kids out here that really love Slither and some of the latter records, which I was mind-blown about. But the impact that Carl had lyrically getting this band in step with the future, which is now. Think about all the people that may have dogged them in the 90s for being vegan. You look at the... um, just the accessibility and the amount of people that have nothing to do with hardcore that are now vegan. It looks like Earth Crisis won in the long run. But as someone who I'm a big fan of his music, huge impact on hardcore when I was coming up and someone I call a friend, I really hope you enjoy this episode. So let's go. Today on This Is Hardcore podcast, we have possibly one of the most iconic hardcore frontmen in the history of the entire movement, not only because of the impact, his lyrics and the band earth crisis and their huge ability to just bring veganism, not only out from the shadows of a very small movement to the amazing 1990s hardcore scene, but to continue doing it for over 30 years, Carl Buckner and earth crisis have actually changed the entire planet. In my opinion, Carl, I'm telling you, man, there's a lot of different hardcore people that have done a lot of different things, but you are a standout individual, not only for your lyrics, not only for your steadfast resolution to do what you think is right, even when the rest of the room would disagree with you. And I'm just happy to have you be on the podcast. Dude, thank you for having me on, my friend. That's that's quite the intro. <laughs> Listen, man, we don't we don't come in here and not give uh, praise where it's deserved. And uh it's amazing to think that people, I mean, you're not a you're not a rich kid, man. You came from really working class Syracuse at a time when shit was absolutely crazy from the 1970s to the early 80s. I, I'd love to hear the way that you came up and what was the first thing to start getting you into hardcore punk. Like what music came first? Not not hardcore wise, like what was the music? What was like growing up? And then like what was your like your path towards finding punk and hardcore? For me, I got exposed to all kinds of music in my youth. You know, for my mother, it was um, orchestral pieces and opera. And for my father, it was everything from surf rock to um, heavy metal and jazz. And some of my friends' fathers were uh, going even beyond that. Like they had us listen to funk and and disco and um well you were that was late you were like late 1970s when you started listening to music like that right absolutely yeah and like the first records that i bought were movie soundtracks like to uh like superman or star wars or uh, and i bought a stanley jordan album so it was all over the place for me you know, music wasn't just one thing. It was like a wide world to explore. But when I started getting into skateboarding, when I was a teen, um, I What was that exposure? Loved... Was that exposure like from kids in the neighborhood? Or did you see it in a movie? Like, how did you find it at such an early time? Well, my cousin actually played bass in a band called Crucifixion of Christ. And he was kind of my my role model in some ways. He uh, later on he went into the military and he had a he had a big career, but he was showing the Angry Samoans and Black Flag and Motorhead, 
and he was also showing me metal like Accept and Creator, all kinds of stuff. So um, he was kind of the gatekeeper for that. But then as I got more and more into skateboarding, I I loved the comedy of punk and I loved the the energy of the early hardcore bands. But it was all kind of in the background. It was kind of the soundtrack to to skating. How was skating at that time? Because obviously everywhere in the Northeast, even out in Syracuse, the 1980s with the different drug epidemics in the inner cities, it wasn't, and I I know this firsthand, it it wasn't easy to be a different kind of kid in the streets at that time. So how was it like just skating and being out as a kid at that time? Well, dressing, dressing punk, you know, or, you know, having beads in your hair or, shaving your head it was kind of a sign of solidarity you know was it individual expression to an extent but it was kind of a sign of like hey we're you know we are a crew and so we'd be out skating and sometimes the bank to wall was in a rough area like a high crime area and sometimes the the bowl would be the same type of thing so we'd be venturing into different neighborhoods and we're you know we're going across the whole city. Like from the time school ended, everyone's complete latchkey kid. From the time school ended until, you know, maybe 9.30 at night, we were free to roam. My parents each worked two jobs. So, um, yeah, it, it was, you know, instantly a car could pull over and you could be in a fight with, you know, four people. You could be in a fight with eight people. Yeah, I, so I, can relate, was, I can relate to that. <laughs> I can relate to that. Just like that moment of you're away from home. There isn't like a, exactly what you said, like last key kids. This is what we do for fun. There was exhilaration, but there also was that uh, threat and the fear that can come from older kids or people you don't know rolling up on you. I, I totally get it. Yeah. And there was no cameras back then. And at school, there was no conflict mediator. There was... um. It was, in some ways, it was kind of the Wild West, I guess. It was Lord of the Fly style. Did you have any interaction with school that was positive? Because, I, I mean, your lyrics, you're definitely well thought out. You have a very, I mean, especially for the 1990s, you had a very awesome vocabulary. I remember reading this shit being like, all right, this is like, this is one of the first thing I noticed about reading Earth Crisis lyrics, especially like the, the further you get on, like well thought out stuff. But, so I wonder how well you did with school. Well, I I loved history class. I absolutely loved that. And I would sit in the front row on purpose and just constantly ask the teacher questions. I mean, now you could Google all those mysteries and have them solved and, you know, read through endless Wikipedia pages about this war, or this inventor, or this conflict, or this explorer. But so I was kind of putting them to the test because I just wanted to absorb as much info as I could. because all that stuff was so fascinating to me. So I love that aspect of school. And I definitely like Jim. And I remember we said, we went to the principal, we're like, Hey, there's a, you know, there's a baseball diamond, there's a football field, there's a basketball court, there's a tennis court. If we, if we buy wood, can we build a ramp? Can we build a half pipe? Can we build a vert ramp on the property? And the guy said, no, he goes, uh, he goes, you're going to have to wait until, you graduate, and then you guys can all move to Venice Beach and skate there. We were like, Venice Beach? What about that? He goes, oh, I was in the Marine Corps. 
on the West Coast. <laughs> That's awesome. So he was nice to us, but we got a hard no. So, you know, we started building ramps in, in our yards. Um, and that was really fun. And thanks to my dad, uh, my dad started out working at a, a greenhouse and then he was doing bigger projects. He was driving a bulldozer and eventually he became a, a developer and he would go into, um, you know, these areas where there were derelict houses or abandoned buildings. And he was one of the first guys in the city to start to renovate them, but they would be affordable housing, you know, affordable housing for like, uh, like lower middle class or, you know, the higher end of the, of the working class. So we had basic carpentry skills and we could, we could build our own stuff. Now at this time, were you guys attached to anything close to a scene or were you going to see random shows? When did you start uh, getting closer to like the actual scene itself? Well, there was a punk scene that we were a little too young for. Um, there was uh, Katrina and Bellevue, and they did bands like um, Fast Furious Death and the Catatonics and Milton's Disciples. So there was, there was quality punk bands for sure. But that scene kind of uh, flared up and then dissipated. You know, once those guys got a little older, you know, it's the Syracuse curse. A lot of people moved away for college and everything else. But we, we missed that. But I, I definitely always want people to go back and explore those bands. The, the Catatonic 7-inch was called Hunted Down, and it was really, really good. Um, so, yeah, so we kind of missed that. But there was a punk scene, and um, we were – we were kind of the first hardcore kids, like the, the punk rocker guys were a little bit older than us. And, you know, they definitely weren't down for straight edge and they were a little leery of hardcore itself. So we were kind of pioneering that here at the time. Yeah. I, I noticed if, if I'm, if I'm getting my, my feelings here that this is somewhere like 84, 85, 86, where like hardcore is finally splitting out from the general punk so the punk people yep. are kind of like, what the hell is this? Why is this different? Was there record stores or anything that was helping you check out music? Or like, what was your ability to see the more hardcore stuff in the Syracuse area? Like, how did you get to that? We had an awesome record store up in North Syracuse called Knucklehead. And anything you wanted, they would order or they already had it in stock. So they were, I mean, they were devoted to bringing like thrash metal and punk and hardcore records into the city. So that like we had our supplier, but yeah, you're right. Like 86, 87 was kind of when hardcore was fully becoming its own thing. Not just like in New York or LA, but like everywhere. I I read somewhere that you had a huge emotional impact and it was like a catalyst point. The first time you seen the, we got a no video. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Chromag's age of coral is in my opinion, it's a masterpiece. Absolutely. And I remember we I remember where we were. We were in my buddy the Sarge's house and we were down in his game room and we were watching Night Flight. We saw that and Bad Brain. And then my buddy JT, who was definitely one of the best skaters, not just in the city, but in the county. Like he could ollie a fire hydrant in like the the mid eighties. Yeah, and when the skateboards were like twenty pounds heavy. <laughs> he could do it. And he could ollie a sawhorse maybe seven, eight years ago. 
so he like maintained his skill level. But anyways, he got a he got the minor threat uh, videotape, and I don't know, it, it was awesome. You know, just the more the more stuff we got, the more we gravitated to it. The more we're like, oh, this fits like a glove with with what we want and who we are. What I like about the Syracuse straight edge scene that would really take form in the '90s is that you, DJ Rose, so many other people were actually like children of the 1980s hardcore scene. And so you guys kind of all seem like you guys got together 87, 88, 89 and linked up with the rest of like the upstate New York people like the Albany people like Dave Stein and stuff like that. And that was kind of like the beginning of what was up there. Or do I have that wrong? You have that 200% correct. Yeah. Dave Stein was doing a wolf pack out there. Our buddy Ed was doing upstate from Utica and uh, we started doing, I started writing songs, both the lyrics and the music for Earth Crisis in 88. And we were on stage by 89, um, cutting our teeth at our first shows. Um, so our hardcore scene w- was getting started and it just grew from there. So we were trying to kind of create, um, we were trying to not, not a parallel scene, but something that had a sharp focus. Now, this is a good time to ask, because I, I kind of know this answer, but for the people listening, as you're creating Earth Crisis and as you guys are blossoming the scene, how much of an impact are you trying to put onto like vegetarian and veganism at time? And where did you first get your own taste of that and how you decided to infuse that into the music? My grandmother um, went down to my grandfather's work. He uh, ran a, a slaughterhouse in Chicago and she saw what was happening to those animals. And when she went home, she made a vow to never eat meat again. And she did not. And my aunt became vegan and then, or a vegetarian, then my mom. And I became vegetarian. I think when I was 18 and and vegan right after it. So, I, I mean, I was getting the whole kindness, towards animals concept from my family and i loved watching uh, marlon perkins and uh the mutual omaha wild kingdom show like i always thought animals were were utterly fascinating i wanted to learn everything i could about them and my parents had a um an encyclopedia britannica set and i would read through those and i'd look up every animal i mean it's like google now you know when you're curious about something but i would put those in my room and I would read those. But when Youth of Today came out with No More, it like really reinforced all those ideas. And I thought like the next logical step would be veganism. And I researched it first and I, you know, learned that the Sikhs and the Jains and different sects of Hindus were all living on a, a true plant-based vegetarian or vegan diet for centuries. So I knew that the, the food pyramid that they had up at school, the doctor's office was a myth and it was just part of like an, you know, a corporate interlocking scam. You didn't need a recommended daily allowance of meat or dairy or any of that to be healthy. Now I find that to be absolutely fascinating way before the internet ever came out. And like yourself, I had Encyclopedia Britannica, went to the public library all the time and, and still to this day kind of miss 
not having the ability just to open up a book and look for something else. It's just like type in the word. Here's the answer. Oh, that wasn't that much fun. You know? Yeah. And I would, I actually, I, I still have one book. I, I swipe from the library. It's called nuclear weapons fact book. It had all these amazing charts and graphs and all the terminology um, related to like nuclear war. And I actually referenced that when I wrote like songs like cease to exist or um, what's some of the other, well, some of the others too, like in the later records. Well, that's what I was going to ask you early on earth crisis, not it gets the connotation mostly for veganism because of what would stand out. But I, I do feel like not that there was a lack of teeth in the straight edge movement, but at the si at the time in the late eighties, most of the bands were just carbon copies of already existing straight edge bands to try to do it. And I found that when you listen to the early earth crisis stuff, if lyrically and the direction and there's a song titles, they're going to draw somebody a little bit more aggressive. And I have to wonder if the background of the history and just the stuff that you were into in your teenage years lend itself to the lyrics to kind of add to that. Well, I mean, the reality is like my godfather and my uncle and my dad, they were all in the military. Um, and I mean, they were definitely trying to like full red dawn me because they thought that, you know, we would either be invaded or there would be a societal collapse. So in the forefront of my mind, like I, I had those those thoughts you know what i mean like like things could fall apart very quickly i mean there could be terrorism there could be an invasion anything could happen i mean and that was related to some of their things that they'd experienced during their time in the service and it made me think that the only time things change for real is when there is force not everything's happened not everything happens through a series of polite suggestions and that doesn't mean that, you know, violence is called for, but I think a certain level of aggression and assertiveness is going to be the only way we save the animals and the natural world. I, I actually just realized with your military family background, did, were they all stationed in Fort Drum or is that just, just nature of like what was available at the time? That's how they ended up in the services. My uncle was, uh, I think he was a ranger and he was stationed in Germany. But my dad was stationed at the air, air base here um, when they had the, the Sabre fighter jets. Yeah, I feel like the people who grew up in the in the late 70s, early 80s, had this backdrop of Red Dong, had this post-apocalyptic 1980s post-apocalyptic movies were just on the B-reel at 11 o'clock at night. So, and I almost wonder how much of it was programmed in a, in a subtle way of uh, indoctrination because the kids who grew up with this, well, the kids who grew up with this stuff, you know, we played with tree sticks with fake guns and, you know, played army man and all that thing. Like, and you, th and you don't think about it as a kid cause you're just having fun. But now you're older, you're like, were they, were they getting us ready for the time when we might have to pick up a gun? Like, like there is some, there is a, there is something to that. And that's, so I'm glad that you touched on that for the, for the sake of the earth crisis lyrics. Now, because the scene was still growing out there, were you guys limited to play or were you guys able to travel beyond just like an hour or so? Like, like what, how was it very early on before you guys actually dropped the EP and you kind of like rebuilt the band? Um, the band took a while to get started. 
Um, we had John Moseman, the, the singer of Upstate from Utica. He was on guitar. Jesse Buckley was on drums. I was playing bass. And uh, DJ, who later joined us in Path, was, uh, he was on vocals. And he wasn't necessarily thrilled with the lyrics that I was writing at the time. Um, and I think it was a little more metal than what he cared for during that era. So he, he bowed out. And then Jesse got in trouble. Um, he got in a real bad fight. And there was uh, box cutters and a severe injury to this guy. And he actually went to jail. And uh, Moseman, I think he went up to Alaska. So I was like, this, like I love this band and I love this idea. I just need to find the right people who will back these lyrics and also you know, hopefully be into the style that I'm trying to write. Because I was trying to stir a big dose of, of metal into the hardcore, not to be metal, but to be more aggressive, you know, to just up the energy level of it and the hardness of it overall. So um, I was playing with a guy from uh, Auburn, which is close by, and we were practicing in Scott's basement because his his mom was never home and uh we could jam anytime there so scott said i met scott at a skate demo and he's like oh you guys could jam in my basement and we did and um he was just sitting upstairs one day and he heard us playing down there and i was singing and he liked my vocals and he came down and picked up his guitar and that's kind of how everything started it was me and scott and then it was me and scott and bulldog because they had another band going called framework that was more melodic like turning point or journeyman or or uh something along those lines but they liked they liked what i was writing and they they were also into into metal too so Everything just clicked personality-wise, belief-wise, taste in music, and that that's when things started. Things started in, in 1991, and the EP was out by 92. I especially feel like hardcore had that moment, and it crested in 89, and you see in 90, the people in the bands like Walter Shreffles would started uh, doing quicksand. Everybody from the 1980s hardcore scene had kind of started changing, and at that time, I mean... I was very young, but I was completely immersed in thrash metal, which would later turn into death metal. And so I could totally see the focus of like, let's metallicize it because early on when I would hear something hardcore, it kind of felt soft in comparison to some of the metal stuff. But I wonder how, when the first, not the first, but the, when you pushed this band again in 1991 with the crazy amount of maximum rock and rolls and all the different punk people trying to hold on, how the stuff was received because it had a metallic edge. Well, here's the thing. I loved Bold and Youth of Today and Wide Awake and Up Front and Turning Point. I loved all that music. And I, I still do to this day. I think it's fantastic. But that's not what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't want to be them. I didn't want to play like them or dress like them. Um, so we kind of ventured out with our own ideas and our own stylistic approach and 
again, you know, for me, I loved Judge and Breakdown and Pro Mag's Agent Quarrel and all those bands. Um, so we stirred that together with certain elements of thrash metal because we also loved all the early Slayers, all the early Metallicas. And, I mean, that's that's kind of where things came from. It was just combining styles and um, boiling it into something different. I I think that's the correct way to do things. I feel like, and you saw it later on, like five years later, when As Earth Crisis is doing Firestorm, which turned into Destroy the Machines, there was this second wave of bands in the mid-90s who wanted to recreate the U to Today era. And it's like, that that's already been done. Like That's why, you know, like, you can't do it again. It's already kind of been there. And I found at the time, because that's when I was really getting fully immersed in hardcore, I was able to pick up Earth Crisis off of South Street. So it was easy. I heard all at war. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> but, you know, the seven is called all at war. I'm in. When I would read zines, there would be people saying, like, Earth Crisis is not a hardcore band. This is completely metal. And I'm coming from seeing Bolt Thrower, Cannibal Corp. Like, I don't, I mean, it's sort of metal, but I mean, it sounds a lot like a hardcore band to me. Like, I could never stand, even much as I liked all the bands from the 90s like that, I could never understand, like, taking, it's like, oh, they're completely, there's no hardcore in it. So it's interesting to see your perspective on how you built up the band on that. Well, and, and that being said, and, you know, also what I, uh, reflected on earlier i I think it's very very important to say that you know i do love slap shot and i love mouthpiece and i think that um in my eyes is awesome and i get that idea it's good to keep you know to take that torch from the 80s and pass it forward and have it sound the same and have it even look the same and and to an extent, we wanted to honor that too when we did uh, Path of Resistance. We wanted it to sound like like it could have been from the late '80s, but and, and even stylistically, the way like people dressed on the record, you know, with the um, varsity jackets and whatnot. But again, we tried to do it differently. We had really slow tempo songs. We had three singers instead of one, and we had a, a different a different lyrical approach. You know, it wasn't necessarily core. I mean, I want the message to be positive, but also want it to be very reality-based. Well, I think the one thing I think can be achieved in Earth Crisis lyrics, even though, like we talked about, like with some themes from war and different stuff, that everything I've ever seen from you, and I, you know, I, I, I look at the shows we played, look at the show, like, you know, Bulldoze, you were out there every night putting to perspective people who didn't hear these things about, you know, the suffering of animals. You had a completely separate approach. And even though the songs might have a negative connotation, ultimately your your vocals, your lyrics, you on stage saying these things, the, the, the way you talk between songs at a time inspired and had a huge positive impact on hardcore. Without saying, let's be positive, you had a huge impact in a positive way of motivating people. And I think that that kind of got lost in that, well, this band's not as metal, or this band's too metal at that time. Well, and my thought is this. If you go to the mechanic or if you go to the doctor, like, you want to know what is wrong. Because if you know what's wrong, then you can remedy it. Then you can repair or realign it. And that was, you know, and I'm sure some people would say, oh, they're terror tactics and fear-mongering of the lyrics. That's not it. It's like, this stuff is really happening to 
um, you know, the first peoples in the Amazon, like their forests are being leveled and they're being robbed of their culture and therefore of their future when their land is being destroyed around them. And it's the same for the animals or anything else. It's like, it needs to present, it needs to be presented in such a way that will, that will shine a light and hopefully motivate people who are smarter than me. You know, I'm just kind of pulling the fire alarm on a lot of these things who will come to the rescue. I will have to wonder once that seven inch came out on conviction, if you started doing this cycle where you would go around Lake Erie, you would do like the Erie, the Buffaloes, the Clevelands, like before you started traveling far, what are the first like touring routes you guys would take? Was it easy to get to Boston? Like when you started leaving town, what were some of the better shows you were playing earlier on? You know what? I, I apologize because you asked me that earlier and I kind of. No, no, no. You're good. No, no. No, we were, we were talking something totally different at the time. It's all good. I'm glad that you backtracked to that because I think that where we are, Syracuse, if you look at a map of New York State, we are directly in the middle. And in three hours, we could be in Buffalo. In five hours, we could be maybe a little more. We could be in Toronto. You know, we could duck down to New York City. We're six hours from Boston. So we're kind of like in the center of the wheel. We're in the center of the hub. And you travel out on these spokes. And we could play, you know, a prime night like a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday, or a Sunday matinee and make it home. You know, so I feel like where we're, we're based out of actually had a lot to do with how we were capable of playing these prime spots on the best nights of the week. I have to say that in, in thinking of the time frame where you guys go from being, oh, that's a, you know, you know, they're growing to, I think when Victory re-released All Out War on Firestorms on the heel of Destroy the Machines, there was like a, a moment where I don't know if it was possible to pick up a zine or go into a record store and not see your name or not see people really infused with Earth Christ or at least knowing about them. And I think that that has to, for kids now, they have to understand like, that took years of doing those weekends. That took years of going out and playing, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, before you were at the point of being almost ubiquitous. Yeah. And I, and I was a janitor, like all out war was paid with money that I made from cleaning offices, you know? So everything, I mean, granted, thank you Bob, for putting it out on conviction, but I mean, everything we were doing was self-financed at the time. Um, that's like how motivated everyone was, you know? Um, so we were, we went out and we played this show in Detroit with Slugfest and Chokehold. And it was at a club called the uh, Coffee House The Grounds. It was near University of Detroit. And we had like a, a hellish trip out. We hydroplaned over a puddle. We crashed into a wall. Our brakes went out. The car was like a death trap. I was holding a flashlight in my teeth because the dashboard lights didn't work to see how fast we were going. We had fake license plates on it, but we made it. And uh, we played the show, and Chad Rapper, who did a Persist Fanzine, happened to see us. And he went back and told Tony that, uh, you know, these guys are, you know, these guys are really forceful, all vegan straight edge thing. And, these guys were, you know, like stage diving with their guitars and going haywire. Like, check them out. 
and Tony checked us out, and that's how we got signed for Firestorm, based off of that one show. And I'm so glad that you know we didn't get discouraged or turned back because it. And I'm so glad that we even started out on that drive because it was. I mean, it was definitely a risk. Like if we got pulled over, we would have probably been in serious trouble. I feel like there's a moment in hardcore where the people in the band who just want to do this at any cost will persevere. And I hear so many young people like, Oh, it'd be so hard because it's like this. And and I, I can, I can share similar stories with you about how we would start off with bad bands. I think the bands that are willing to push beyond what the normal acceptable thing are doing it for the right drive. And I'm, I'm glad that you guys pushed forward because a lot of what you guys would do would become emblematic of what the nineties hardcore scene would stay in people's minds. Now, you know, like when you say like jumping in the crowd, like there was a moment where I don't think I see an earth crisis, maybe in like the beginning of a song, the guitarist would stand back and not be jumping, but you know, you guys had some of the most incredible live performances at a time when hardcore was already at a high point. And I think it's because of the energy and drive that you guys had. And, and I'll say this too, you know, um, when it comes to those live shows, you know, we were playing with a lot more enthusiasm than skill. So, you know, when some people go back and they listen to those early records, they're going to be like, oh, you know, this, this doesn't sound like, like terror at all. You know what I mean? It's like, this is really sloppy and, you know, the guitar tone is thin or, you know, I mean, I, I, I can see why, you know, certain people would feel that way. But I think what was drawing people to our shows was that, you know, was that energy between us and the crowd. It, it was, it really was, it really was a magical thing. Now, I, I, the the Middle Sussex County College show is like a crazy show for me for so many reasons. But specifically, it was like three days after my daughter was born. And I was like, I'm going, I'm going to this fucking show. And I, I tell everybody about Middlesex. Uh, Tracy and them did some of the craziest shows in the 1990s there. But if you were an attendee at that show, there was an energy from the first person as close to you to grab the grab your shoelaces to the back of the door. Like every word was sung. There was even room at times to really mosh hard, like the big circles there are now. Like it, it was probably one of the most epic moments for me because this was still so new. And I'm thinking about a band that by projection of like Tony and his ability to have the street teams and the posters, you know, you guys were a huge deal, but playing in like a giant college hall. It was fucking fantastic. It was like the meshing of two worlds. Here's a band that like, you know, as a kid, I'm like, holy fuck, Earth Christ is going to play at college. That's crazy. I'm thinking you guys are like at giant club levels. And that show was undeniably one of the best shows I've ever seen. It was fun. It was. And the shows at the Stone Pony were were awesome. We played there with Fury of Five a bunch. Yeah, she did. And, and we played with Nora and uh, Burnt by the Sun. And, you know, yeah, I went, New Jersey. while we're talking about it, the best part about Earth Crisis is Madball, Fury of Five, Blood for Blood. Everybody in the East Coast who is known for having like a rough and tumble crowd the band people love Earth. Isaac loves you. Like Earth Crisis for the vegan straight edge message has the best friends in some of the most chaotic 
like rough and tumble hardcore bands of that time period. And I always thought that people missed that part. Like you guys were able to tour with these guys and share vans, have good times, despite the fact that you guys were all vegan traded. I think people missed that part. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't know what the problem was. The straight edge bands did not want to tour with us. Some of them were hostile towards us, but all those guys embraced us, you know? So, I mean, we got to tour Europe with Madball. We got to tour, uh, the U.S. and do runs with with Scarhead and with Crown of Thorns. So, I mean, it, it was awesome. And and we toured with Fury of Five as well. That's, tr- that's yeah. great. Yeah, it was always and awesome. I heard their- stuff and it's great. It's always awesome because, like, obviously, there's uh, like older friends of mine, and they would, you know, that you'd see like a manball do with an earthquake or, or a stick man, be like, "Fuck, I fucking love earthquakes." It's like it was always the realest dudes that would support you guys. And I, I like that you said that there was some kind of like, I always feel like Victory would pitch some bands against each other. Being on Victory, there was a, probably some brother bands. Obviously, we have the the celebration of the uh, California takeover just recently in Philadelphia. So you had some brotherhood, but there was some pecking order or some like inner band bullshit with other bands for da- very different reasons instead of being lifted up. And it was such a weird thing because you guys were being lifted up by who you people could assume it's like oh yeah those guys don't do anything about vegan straightism it's it's it is manball it is fury of five it is blood for blood you know it's all these other bands that were pushing you guys you know yeah and they really helped too and uh you know john joseph was always good to us yeah you guys toured with them you took both you took both worlds to philadelphia that in in the summer yeah and you get you guys are you guys are running late to the trocadero like traffic hit and you guys were late. So both worlds did their set and then they did some age of quarrel songs until you guys came on at the truck. Yeah. And John Joseph's new band, I heard the new record. It's awesome. Yeah. Blood clot. Blood clot. The new great dude. Now looking at um, that. T- and he- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go, go, go with the John thing and then I'll bring it up. I was just going to say, dude, I mean, he's like the stuff he's doing with his vocals is pretty amazing on the new record. I mean, he think about how long someone does something, you know, like if you, if you look at, if you look at how long John's been doing stuff, I, I, you know, for whatever flack the younger kids say of some of these older guys, the fact that someone can be dedicated to doing something for 40 years in itself is worth some, some credits. And it's, uh, he did blood clot. Once or twice with Bad Brains as a, for fun. He did Chromax. He went right to both worlds. Then he did like the he did the Fearless Vampire Killers. Then he brought Blood Blood Clot out again. It was heavier with Biohazard dudes and dude from Marauder. And we uh, Shadow Realm played some shows with him. Then he did the Blood Clot again. And Todd was involved in R.I.P. to Todd. Now he's back with a new thing. It's like you got to give John his credit, not just for being a dude who's still doing hardcore shows, but for keep pecking away at it and just having fun, get up their mic. Cause by the time he's at his age, he's not making money doing blood clot. He's doing it for fun. And cause it's what he's done his whole life, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's probably writing more books and screenplays, you know, he's there. Yeah. He's there cause he loves the core. I was going to get deeper into some of the earth crisis stuff, but with time, I want to make sure that we get deeper into not this Carl, but like some of your outlooks, some of the, like, you know, hindsights um, and, and just different perspectives, because I feel people in hardcore today, 
they miss a lot. You know, I, I'm a big fan of history. I, I think kids don't look at the hardcore scene in any kind of historical lens. They kind of like pick and choose stuff, you know? So like randomly, like there's a kid who will be like, I think Earth Crisis best record is Slither. And you're just like, wait, where'd that come from? I mean, like there's kids that because of the streaming stuff will skip some of the early records that were huge and iconic and whatever. And it'll jump right to some of the other things. And I wonder if you were encountering that as you're playing to new audiences, kids that are asking for some of the latter material that came out in the 2000s and such. Well, I'm, I'm proud of everything that we've done, you know, and there's not too many bands that, you know, you can look back all the way to 19, you know, 92, 93. And it's, you know, it's me and Bulldog, it's me and Scott with Dennis and Eric was, he was always there with us, you know, cause he was playing in his own vegan straight edge band that were coming out on the road with us. And then he would roadie. So when Eric, when Eric joined in the, in the mid nineties, I mean, he was already a friend and he was already very, a very proficient musician. Um, so, you know, I'm, I mean that, I think that's something that makes us unique too, that we've been this cohesive, um, group of friends and, and cohesive uh, band members through all those decades. But I'm most proud of, like for what I've been trying to achieve with my vocals and my lyrics, it is to the death and neutralize the threat and salvation of innocence and the record that came out last year, Vegan for the Animals. Like that is what I've been trying to do this whole time vocally and lyrically. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of finally finally achieving that goal from your perspective when you started obviously you're younger and it, i know from just screaming it, it takes a while to kind of harness and get your vocal range to where you want to be what were you modeling your vocals off from the get-go when you actually stopped playing bass and started singing like what was the your like end result in mind when you first picked up the mic yeah that's a good question I don't know. I feel like I was just kind of trying to, you know, walk my way through the dark with it. You know, I, I knew, I knew that I wanted like a really high aggression level. Um, and that I wanted it, you know, I wanted like a, a low growl, but it had dynamics to it. You know, it could switch back and forth with pitch and there would also be a, at least, at least a modicum of disciplability. Like I didn't want it to be like so low, like that's not aware the words were indecipherable. So, like I said, I mean, like the, the most recent records, I, I, I know I'll be proud of them forever because I think we finally had like the right artists, the right engineers. You know, Zeus was mixing and mastering things and, and Tui Madsen and, you know, we had some of the, some truly great artists working on paintings for us, like the guy that did all this stuff for Mastodon to cover for um, To the Death. So it, it took a long while to get there, but I, I think we're there. Looking into the overall amount of times you toured and different things you've done in the United States, looking at hardcore now, it's so much easier for a hardcore band at the early stages, even to like a band Earth Crisis, to get on a metallic tour. Do you ever look back in hindsight and think if we would have just done one tour with this band in America, Earth Crisis could have got bigger or you don't have any kind of thoughts like that? Well, I'll tell you what, um, 
Slipknot offered, I'll say it, they offered, I think it was Snapcase a tour. And I was thinking, man, those college boys are getting that tour. How come I should have been on? <laughs> and I loved him and I love those guys. So I was like, come on, man, they should have been on. And I will say, I think that if like in the 90s or mid 2000s, had we done a tour with a band of that caliber, I think we would have exposed a, a whole new crowd to our style of hardcore and to, to our messages. But, did you, you know. Did you guys have management back then at the at the high point in the late 90s? Or were you guys just having a booking agent and making a lot of your own decision with Tony's help? We had we had booking agents, uh, a couple of different ones, and they, they definitely did a good job for us. And the management did get us signed to Roadrunner, but they also did not fight to keep us on. And when Roadrunner kind of, it's like Roadrunner and Century Media, it, like from an outside perspective, it looked like once, you know, um, Slipknot and Mushroom Head and those type of bands were starting to rise, they were like, dissolve the hardcore division. Both Worlds, Mad Ball, Shelter, Earth Crisis, get them out of here. You know what I mean? And I think it was the same thing over at, uh, you know, so that that's what happened with us, I think, at Roadrunner. And that's kind of what happened with at Century Media, too. They're like Marauder, Botch, Turmoil, what, whoever it was. I don't, I can't recall specifically who. But it, it definitely seemed like it was a very, very quick turnover. You know what I mean? Well, but, it's actually, I mean, if you look. Look not a thing like they, they put us on their fest in, in California, and from what I heard, we were handpicked by those guys. So very thankful for that. Very appreciative. Yeah, I would definitely say both that Snapcase was not the right choice. Even then, they weren't the right choice to kind of go over on the Slipknot crowd. But also, I covered this in a couple of different ways with a couple of different people on the podcast. There was a moment where, with the rise of Biohazard, the beginning of Mabel, and all the labels kind of being situated with New York offices, some of the metal labels were like, let's buy into this New York hardcore and see what comes with it. And it was kind of like a gamble. Let's see what happens. And then when they're like, Oh, wait, the thing over here that's going to make us money? Let's go here. They dropped everybody without the thought of like, oh, we just put this money in all these bands. Yeah, totally. And and I say that playfully. I, I obviously love Tim and Daryl and everyone in, in Snapcase, like calling them college boys. But come on. You know what I mean? Like we musically would have fit with. That's exactly where I'm coming from. You were metallic. You guys were metallic enough that you guys would have definitely won over a crowd a lot easier than Snapcase, which was doing like some more post-hardcore kind of off, off-tempo groove stuff. I don't think it would have went over as well. Yeah, and they didn't. They didn't even end up doing the tour. But like, Snapcase should be on the road with Quicksand. They should be on the road with Deftones because those guys would love them, and it would make sense. And I and I want to see them win. In, in the way that veganism is now in hardcore, are you aware of just how in just in the time we've talked about, which has been 30 years, vegan was a hard thing to do. It became easier. It became more accessible. It became popular. And I think that before certain bands would have to play a show for specific people to be vegan to come to the shows, and now it's in every scene. It's in every shows. There's vegan has Veganism has grown. Do you feel any bit... Like you had a part in it, or are you just happy that it's happening? Like, are you taking any ownership of that, or you're just like, "Fuck it, I'm glad it's happening. I don't need to be like the um, a spokesman for this movement." Well, I mean, 
we are the world's first vegan straight edge band. And the first hard light band was Vegan Reich. The first Krishna core band would probably be Chromail. You know, so to be able to be a part of something at the beginning, I think it's special. And I, and a, and a podcast like this, it is. We're documenting our own history. Um, so I'm I'm proud to be vegan straight edge. I'm forever true to it, and I love all the, you know, the bands on Catalyst Records, like uh, Nueva Ethica and Birthright and everything that they've done for the movement, and the punk bands like Conflict and Propaganda and Drop Dead. I mean, the whole thing is a team effort. You know what I mean? Everyone's been working hard at this for decades. Um, so I'm just thankful to see, you know, people come out of the punk and hardcore scene and start their own restaurants and start their own companies that forward this concept and make these products uh, accessible and affordable. It has to be a surreal moment for you to see, aside from the hardcore scene, the accessibility and the acceptance in general of veganism to the point where major chains, which as you said earlier, you know, they profit completely off of this stuff, are willing to now share self, self uh, it's like a fucking uh, twister, <laughs> share self, self space. Self space. <laughs> share, share <self> yeah, <laughs> it's a twister. But yeah, to share the shelf, because I mean, there's brands that pay thousands of dollars for those shelving spaces to be now giving to these kind of things. And I don't think that would have been possible without the kind of movement made in the hardcore scene and the punk in the punk spaces in the 1990s to really bring so much of this to the, to the forefront. Oh, dude, we're dumb. Think about all like the vegan strange girls that went out and like started a restaurant or a bakery or a company that makes this or that, like, all, like they are, they're all in the winner's circle. You know, they actually like made stuff happen. In the time frame where you guys were growing to the point where, this is pre Gomorrah season's end. I've always felt like because you guys were growing through victory and because you were so ubiquitous, there was a target on your heads for anything you might have said in zines. I always make the joke that like to kids that don't understand it, like you could get interviewed in a zine and five months later it'll get published and somebody's mad at you about something you don't even remember saying to some kid outside of a show versus today's internet world that people don't realize like earth crisis was growing at a phenomenal rate because of the work that you did because of the, the shows that you played and there was a lot of people in these zines hard at hand fuck this band for being military even though they were vegan straight edge, like everything they would agree with you politically like uh, yeah these guys are like you guys have been called some of the craziest shit in the 1990s by zinesters and it just blows my mind to think now like how all of that is dissolved and that whole entire culture of zines and the, like the, the, the printed criticism is completely gone. And now we're in a place where people truly do give you guys your due for the impact that you've had. Well, I think, you know, the vegan straight scene has grown worldwide. I mean, there are so many bands in Europe and, and South America and, and here in the States too, that, you know, we're not the strangers that are coming into town and causing trouble. You know, I, so I think that because we've lasted so long and we've 
made so many friendships, people figured it out. Um, and, and maybe some people were right to test us. Maybe they didn't think we were real. Maybe they didn't think that we were going to like, uh, you know, maybe they thought that it, it was just words, but obviously, you know, time has shown that this is something we live true to and we always will. Now, looking at this whole thing, I ha I've always wanted to know specifically about the, the track Amora Season's End. You're, you're a vegan straight edge band. You have figured out the blueprint to put I am straight edge at one of the most iconic moments in an iconic song on an insane record. What came first? Did you guys just like, holy shit, we have a point? Or were you like, I've got to throw it? Like, I have to know how the, one of the world's greatest straight edge sing-alongs got into that song. I got to know. You've given us a lot of really awesome compliments, man. It, it means a lot, you know? Thank you so much for that. But what, because I, I, I try to take the message very seriously when it comes to forwarding through the lyrics. Like I would write a story. I would write an essay and I would go through it and I would highlight or copy all the lines out of it that I thought were strong. You know, I was like trying to build the case for these concepts. Like I was trying to build like, so to speak, a, a fortress. You know what I mean? It's like, we're going to hit on all the points, what's on the outside, what's on the inside, and how we can carry it into the future. And, and to this day, I, I do think that that, that, that song, Good Morning Season Ends, it's like I tried to condense as much of that into one block of lyrics as I could. What I'm saying is, did you go, this is the song I put, I am straight edge, or did you have like this eureka moment while you're like, holy fuck, I could throw this in here. I, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that on most Earth Crisis records or Path records, the word straight edge or um, a reference to the X is in there somewhere on one track or another. So I, I think we've I think we've done it on on almost on almost every record we've we've ever put out. So there was this there was this moment a couple of this hardcore ago. There's this moment a couple of this hardcore goes, and I'm like, I. You know, like I said, not only you guys become friends of mine, but you guys are one of these bands that I always want to have a place out of this is hardcore for. Should you guys ever say, hey, we want to play or hey, we're available to play. And I was like, you know what? We got a lot of younger bands. Let's put Earth Crisis in a perfect spot where they're not playing too late. They're not playing too early. And you motherfuckers get up there and you have this set and the entire crowd which is like over 2,000 people are screaming, I am straight edge. And I remember standing there and I'm watching all the other bands were like waiting to go and be like, how the fuck can we follow? Like, what the fuck? Like, you know, like, like Fury of Five had to play after Marauder had to play after. And they're all like, well, fucking Earth Crisis. Like, that was one of the coolest moments in the history of this is hardcore period. I have to tell you that. Like, truly, that's not a cap as the kids. Like, this is no cap situation. Like, that was a chill bringing moment. And I remember you guys getting off stage and just being so elated, like, fuck yeah, we still got it, baby. It was so great. It was like, and, I, and, I, and I've been I've been pushing Scott to get you guys to come back to play the fest since then. You guys did play Keystone Jam for us. You guys played the church. In fact, I was thinking about it today. I'm like, okay, well, 
They played the Trocadero. They've played the First Unitarian Church. They've played the Barbary, which is the smallest place I think you've played in Philadelphia. You guys have played at the Union Transfer. You guys have played the Electric Factory. But and before it was called Franklin Music Hall, this is hardcore. In fact, do you remember that show you guys played with Guara Mephiscopheles and all that in the late nineties? Yeah, so definitely. Every song you guys played, there was a fight because we were in the pit when we were assholes, and it was like, it was what. And I tell everybody, this is like a Tim Bohr show: Earth Crisis, Mephiscopheles, Misfits, and Guar was a show in 1990 that, and you guys have one of the craziest opening set reactions I've ever seen. Yeah, it was fun. I remember that. And I remember the, the show you're referencing it. This is hardcore. There was no barrier. There was no security. And there was only a couple monitors on stage. So it was just like, I don't know. It was pandemonium. <laughs> it's like, it, it's exactly what you want out of a hardcore show, you know? What I love about it is that no matter what the time is, if you guys are available, you guys still play some of the coolest places. Hey, you guys even just played underground arts with the, uh, the California takeover shows. It's like, it's awesome to see a band with such a legacy and such a timeline still be available to the modern hardcore kids, because there are a lot, a lot of bands with this kind of like, well, we're going to try to grow the brand and in different directions. I think that earth crisis has always stayed directly in line with the people that have been interested in the band. And always been available to the band. And I can't say that for a band with a legacy and a timeline as long as yours. And I have to think it's because you guys have never been trying to get to like, well, if we write this different record, we're going to be rock stars and we're going to have a bus. You know, I, I think it's been always in line with your values of what you've been trying to do since the beginning. Right. And and since the beginning, you know, the goal was, was to forward a message and play as a you know, as aggressive a style as we could put together and, and try to put twists and turns into it to keep it original. And that was, and that was something again, that I feel like we, uh, we have started to achieve with the four most recent records EC has done. And when we play some of those songs too, they go over well, which makes me happy. Yeah. I feel like the, the, there's like that two wolves idea. The fan wants to hear the stuff they always love, and yet the fan has to accept that the band wants to grow and do more than just the same record four times. And you're gonna lose you're gonna lose some people in doing different things and you're gonna gain different traction. But I don't think you ever lost the as the kids you lost the script, especially at the time when you guys were doing the records. There's only so many times you could do the firestorm, there's only so many times to screw the machines can be touched on and so many bands also after you and this is like i say is like a lot of bands came after earth crisis just being a third rate earth crisis the same way you said you didn't want to be another turning point you know you know like you guys really did kick off an entire secondary movement to the point where now we're going to touch on this is hardcore i don't think bands like prayer for cleansing and undying would exist if there was no earth crisis and that's because you guys took vegan straight edge and you mixed it with metallic sounds. And I think it elevated the whole thing to eventually bring all those kind of bands into fruition at the end of the nineties. Um, again, you know, like, um, undying and prayer for cleansing. I know they just did a show down in North Carolina and they did awesome. And Jimmy 
from uh, Undying has come out and played with Earth Crisis. He went to Southeast Asia with us when we did the Hammer Sonic Festival in Jakarta and Indonesia. And we played in um, Thailand and Singapore. So, I mean, all these guys are friends, and, and we want to see everybody win. Hey, uh, when uh, I asked Scott to play this hardcore, the first thing he said was, well, what day is prayer for cleansing plan? <laughs> it's fucking great. Um, in 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 trying to frame some of the stuff we just talked about in with the last couple minutes we're going to do here, your message was very strong, direct. We talked about all that. People who didn't really realize the impact by today's standards missed the whole part where you're on Dateline. Missed the thing where like there was almost a trope where like vegan straight edge or straight edge, you know, violence and straight edge. You became someone who would be put on TV. And I remember after when I went on TV, you and I talked on the telephone and you said the mistake that you made, which is what you were saying to me, you were saying it to me, Joe, the mistake you made is what I made. We should have brought our own camera to video the B-roll, the stuff that they cut out. And I have to wonder, yeah. you said that to me and it was one of the coolest and most important piece of advice I got from a hardcore guy yet. And I have to wonder if in looking back on the pieces that were put out that you were a part of, if you have regret or you kind of let it all go and go, oh, well, it's in the past. I don't, I don't care what they put on TV. Well, here's the thing. I'm glad that they put us on TV. Um, not necessarily with all of the specific angles and stories that they focused on and kind of wove us into the tapestry of. But I think when CNN did the Network Earth special or we were on TBS or the Recovery Network, like all those, all those documentaries, I think, were very well done because those guys hung out with us for a couple of days and spent time and actually understood us as people and the methods that we're trying to forward. So those all work like a charm. Um, not all of them did, you know, and that's one of the beauty of these podcasts especially the long form ones like this or the one I did with Hoya or, you know, um, uh, I mean, I, I've done a lot of them in, in recent years and there's always different things to talk about. And when we're documenting our, our own history like this in detail, I think that's also a part of why, you know, there isn't all this negativity surrounding things. You know what I mean? Because somebody from a zine, can't present us as a one-dimensional monster, you know? No, I, I think, and uh, I recently got into it with the guy who wrote the stupid article in GQ. I feel like the return of the grifter freelancer who wants to take a shot as hardcore is growing, hey, pay me $250, I'll write some stupid article in GQ about hardcore. I think we as a scene, as you said it, we have to do our best to present our history and to cap and to captivate it in the best positive light instead of going back and forth and saying, Hey, do you remember what Chubby Fresh said this and all that bullshit that was in the zines? There's books. You can go find the zine for 50 cents on the internet or whatever. You got to find it. All that drama is over with. I think the important thing is, is that the podcasts of today have to uplift, promote and support the people that are here supporting and pushing our scene and the, and the people like you, the veterans and the, you know, the people that really put a lot of time into helping it grow, that's what these podcasts are supposed to be. So younger folks or people who are just tuning in now and learning about our culture have firsthand accounts from someone like yourself. So instead of having to read a third-hand account of what car or because you're hearing it from the horse's mouth, and that's why I do the podcast the way I do. Well, 
Yep. And I appreciate that. And I mean, I love watching um, these podcasts and listen to them and learning about different bands and taking deep dives into everything that they experience and everything that they help create. Um, and that's the other thing too, is that I think, you know, people finally started to understand too. When, when I was sitting down and writing some of these lyrics, they were about specific things and specific people like Peter Young rescuing the animals from the fur ranches or um, Rod Coronado sinking the whaling ships in Iceland or um, members of direct action against drugs in Ireland or the Black Panthers on the West Coast, like pushing back against the drug plague. Like we were documenting their history that mainstream news media seemed to have a, a blackout on. They weren't interested in covering it or they were suppressing it. So we were trying to forward that and hopefully plant a little seed that would germinate and kids would go and, and read more and learn more on their own. So we, we tried to be a starting point for kids learning about some of those groups or specific groups like Earth First or the Sea Shepherds or the Animal Liberation Front. So we tried to we tried to, you know, have kind of a long range vision and see well where could things go, or sometimes be reflective and look back and and just kind of shine a light on those individuals and those groups, and to the best of our ability, try to try to describe what was going on in their minds when they were carrying out these actions. I think one of the things that kind of gets left out over time in the in the '90s in the zine culture world is that there was so many active people in the vegan straight edge territory that were doing shit that in hindsight, Oh, well, this guy put this thing on fire and it's not seen in the light of that. This was like revolutionary action. And it really was at the time because of things that you had highlighted on that there was the food pyramid and that there wasn't this other story. And I think that bands like yourself and the whole movement you guys pushed Gave highlight to, as the kids would say, normalize being vegan and normalizing pushing pushing back. I love anything that's against whatever system is. I've never been vegan. I was vegetarian for like three years. Um, I support anybody who pushes back against the status quo. Anybody who looks beyond the machinations of what the government puts in front of you, I'm in. Even if I don't know the whole thing, I'm like, all right, these guys are pushing back. Oh yeah, they're, they're gonna like because there's constantly. Our own our own dollars, our own dollars taken out of our own paychecks are being put to use against us every single day by the government that tells us in some kind of crazy dystopian world that, you know, this is the best thing for you. And so I think it's important that there are bands like Earth Crisis lyrically and that support. I mean, you guys have always been in touch with so many different people who are part of the scene, but also do these radical stuff. And I think that a lot of bands put lip, what do they say? Um, they put their lips on or whatever. What's the, what's the, what's the saying? It's like they lip service, they put lip service to it, but they're not actually following through or being supportive. And you've always been very supportive of very radical groups. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, when Patriot Act was going through and the animal enterprise terrorism thing was going through, uh, we wondered where, where it would land or where it would halt, or how far it would extend. Um, and I think it's important for young guys and young girls to know that, you know, all this stuff 
with these vegan food products and all these exposés and books and documentary films like Keegan Coons, Cowspiracy and Seaspiracy, like those, those things exist because people force them into reality. And they drag listeners and viewers into the future by exposing them to the truth. Like this didn't just happen organically and blossom. Like it was a fight to get to where we are. That was absolutely a revolution at times because it was so counterintuitive to the modern way that people had thought through the industrial revolution into the modern times. Like, oh, well, this is acceptable. And you guys were like, no, we don't have to do any of that. And it's incredible to see it in play modern times. Because we're going to roll this up soon, you're playing This Is Hardcore on the Friday night. The show is sold out because it's a smaller room. And I wanted to keep you guys in a room that would make the most insane possible impact. And I can't help but wonder if you're excited to be playing with your peers in bands like Integrity. I know you guys have a long, great history with Chokehold. You guys were label mates with Dead Guy. And obviously the whole lower bill, you know, we have Orthodox, another great vegan straight-edge band. Momentum's an amazing straight-edge band. You're the Knife is a straight-edge band. Like, we've always put these kind of catering things. But how do you feel about playing? I got, like, not in the personalized, but the excitement of being in 2023 – the top four bands are Integrity, Earth Crisis, uh, Dead Guy, and Chokehold. That's got to get you excited that kids are still into all these bands. Yeah, we we played with uh, Chokehold and Hamilton, and those shows were amazing. Um, I saw Integrity in Albany. It may have been with Stigmata, and they were awesome. It was um, somewhere between In Contrast of Sin and for those who fear tomorrow, I felt like they were at the top of their game musically. And, um, you know, we played with Year of the Knife. And who, who was the other one? Well, yeah, Dead Guy, which is like a band for victory. Yeah, yeah. We, saw, we saw Dead Guy at the Lost Horizon, and they were awesome. So, I mean, this is, this is going to be an amazing show. And, you know, we're honored to share the stage with all those awesome bands. Now, it's a surreal thing for us to be able to bring these kind of bands together. And I have to say, when people are like, how do you guys do it? I ask the band. You guys say yes or no. And I gotta, I always testify that Earth Crisis is easy. If you're around, if you're available, you guys are always worried about overplaying. But people love you. And I'm just lucky that you guys are always accepting and wanting to come back and play. Because it makes these bills better with your uh, inclusion on it, man. Well, dude, thank you for that, and and thank you for all the, the kind things you said about EC, and, you know, thanks to everyone that uh, continuously supports and appreciates us over all these years, and um, we talked a little bit about dystopian stuff. I definitely want everyone to check out uh, our other band, Apocalypse Tribe, and I want everyone to check out the new Freya. We got a record coming out on uh, Upstate Label this year. We got Freddie Madball guesting on it and um, Volvo from Terror and Jamie from Hatebreed. So it's the 20th anniversary of Freya. And, you know, we're, we're going to be out there with EC this year and, and hopefully uh, we'll be on the West Coast in the fall with EC. You're leaving one band out, Carl. Which, oh, Empath Resistance. Yeah. We don't have any new material. <laughs> We love our, we love our the day. Audience. The we day will, the day will come. The day will come. 
<laughs> we love all our children equally. We do. Um, I'm gonna leave you. I'm gonna leave you with two simple ones. If you had to pick okay. a single, if you had to pick a single Earth Crisis highlight for you to like, if you had like, you know, when they say you see the last flashing moments in your eyes. If one of them was looking as you're passing, one of the last moments is an Earth Crisis highlight. What do you think it is? I would say for me, it would be the Rock in the Park show in Bogota, Colombia. Um, it was it was the biggest crowd we ever played to, and it, it was a surreal experience. It it was incredible, and that was during the the height of the drug cartel violence in Colombia, and I was like. I mean, they've killed journalists. You know, they've killed, uh, you know, Police, people that have... Military. <laughs> they've killed everybody. You know, we're going there with guitars. You know, uh, this, this could be it. <laughs> this, this could be it. Who knows what's going to happen? But we played that show and our energy level was, like our excitement was, it was like off the chart and the crowd was incredible. It was incredible. Hopefully that footage is up on YouTube somewhere, but... Yeah, I would say that rock in the park, it was it was right at the end of the 90s, and I felt like that was like a, a huge part of the fulfillment of our mission, you know? One of the things throughout this conversation and just in general, you are a person who is always not only having a large worldview, you pay so much respect to the third world countries. And I noticed that you're always involved or uplifting these smaller hardcore scenes in these places that people can't even point out on a map. And I have to wonder where did you get all that from to start understanding that hardcore is in all these different places. And just, I wonder if you even understand that you, the respect you give goes so long for these people from places like the Philippines and Thailand, et cetera. Well, I'll tell you what, like when, from the time earth crisis started, we would get letters, actual letters written on paper, you know, put an envelope, mail with a stamp. And they were coming from all over the world. And it was very encouraging. It was very motivating. And, it, and there was something special about knowing that somebody um, connected to our music to such a degree that it inspired them to do a band or inspired them to, you know, become straight edge or, or vegan or to be involved in in something that relates to animal rights. So we saved all those those letters. And, you know, we're getting... Scott's get, Scott handles, like, our, our online presence, and he's getting, like, Islamic prayers sent to us from different parts of Southeast Asia. And, you know, people saying that they're praying for our safety and, and for us to have our victories. And it, it really does. It means the world. Yeah. In general, you have a great worldly view. I know that um, you've given like on stage shout outs to the Andaga Reservation, which is close to Syracuse. You've always given a lot of love and respect to the first world people, uh, the first nations people in America. I see it in interviews. And I, I played in a reservation in Prescott, Arizona with Punishment like 20 years ago. And it was just one of the most surreal experiences to, to be out there in the dark playing to these kids and just knowing that like this could be their exposure to like an entire other world. It was fucking fantastic. And I think that sometimes when people are doing the hardcore band thing, they're chasing the rock and roll dream and not chasing the power of what this scene could be. And I've never could say that about you guys because 
you guys, even at your then whatever peak you guys are at, you are always uplifting smaller people and pushing people to see what the the play that these people have to go through. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know. Um, Syracuse is right on the edge of the um, Onondaga Nation um, res. So, you know, we've always, you know, we've always had friends that are from that background and Earth Crisis just played the Lost Horizon with one king down maybe two weeks ago and there was Oneidas there and there was, you know, people from our reservation here too. That's a, it's a surreal thing to think because obviously Philadelphia, we don't really, we have all the names of the area are Lenape, but nothing, there's nothing left of that besides the names, but you guys still have those remnants. Yeah, I feel like Syracuse and Auburn are, are like like the only other place that I could think of right off the bat that's like that would be like St. Paul, Minneapolis. Like there's a huge res like pretty close to them too. Well, Carl, I don't want to take up more of your time. I I can't wait to see you at This Is Hardcore and in general. Thank you for everything you've done for Hardcore. Thank you for always being the easiest person to deal with. You know, there's a there's a thing about the front man in Hardcore at times where the ego takes over the person you come in with no ego, you come in with no crazy requests, no anything. And you just get on stage and do the thing. And I've never seen you be too cool or too busy to not talk to fans. And I want people to hear that and understand that you are probably one of the most approachable people for the size and the ability of your band to just grow worldwide. You are probably one of the easiest people to talk to from just a regular fan. And I, it's, it's awesome to see when you interact with younger people that you actually engage and you don't just blow them off. And, and I got to say, man, you know, we didn't get propped up by some major label and, and all their money. Like we exist because the fans supported us and they would take us into their houses and, feed us and let us stay overnight and help us on our way. Like everything that we have is thanks to the people who support and appreciate us. That's why I wrote what I did on the back of the, the vegan for the animals album. You know, I, I wanted to commemorate the, the milestone of passing 30 years of, of, you know, being in earth crisis and path resistance with my friends and, and getting to travel the world and, and, play to people who value us and, and we cherish them. You know, they're, they're the reason why we get to do what we do. I, I couldn't be more thankful that you guys are still doing what you do. And um, obviously without your impact, I can't, I think there would be 10 less bands on this bill just this year and not even think about how many people wouldn't have found hardcore or straight edge or how many people would have fell to not having someone push straight edge in a positive light. And, and I think the, the impact you've had on the world, really, I don't even know if you'll ever be able to equate it, but I thank you for it. And I look forward to seeing you in August, my friend. Awesome. Can't wait to play. Thank you. Uh, thank thank you. you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, TIAC podcast for all the show notes. Make sure you check out Friday and make sure you are trying to get your ticket for this hardcore. Thank you always for supporting Philly hardcore shows. Um, been working a lot, so I'm a little tired, so I don't have my usual chit-chattering, and I also recorded an episode, which will be coming out in a couple of days after this one, so I'm a little spent, but needless to say, Bob, Stucky, and everybody is holding down Philly HC shows 
well, I'm at this nuclear outage. Can't wait for I can't wait for the summer. I can't wait for this hardcore. Shannon Rum just announced a show in Chicago. Got big plans for June 24th at the church in Philadelphia. Thank you guys for supporting. Again, TIHC podcast is now on YouTube. Go check that out. And thank you for everything. Take care.